no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. Flying solo at the moment. I have an interview coming up with Dr. Amy Fitchner, the superintendent of Owasso Public Schools, Owasso Rams, Owasso, Oklahoma. We've been having this series of conversations thanks to Dr. Alani Stein, who is teaching a dream course concept at the University of Oklahoma where you are given some funds to do a once in a lifetime type of course. She's doing one on women and leadership and bringing in a ton of speakers to do so. We are excited that we've gotten the opportunity to speak with all of them so far. Uh, Mostly Ralph has. We haven't been able to get in the studio at the same time Uh, and today is the same. So I wanted to record this, though, on the front end in hopes that the conversation is as organic as possible, not having to listen to the the intro and, and, and do the introductions at the beginning, but really just jump in to it. So that is what we're going to do. Super fun conversation. Excited that had the opportunity to do this one, but I don't want to waste any more time. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to clap my hands. And when I'm done clapping my hands, we're going to be on the other side at the conversation itself. So here we go. So you just talked. How did it go? Or did you? Have you talked yet? I haven't talked yet. I'm talking okay. after we get done tonight. So, so you're starting with me. Yes, you're first. <laughs> That's exciting. Um, so from what I understand, you just, this is your first year as superintendent. It is. I imagine that <clears throat> this is something like an 80s movie where... Um, you know, you like your whole life, like the goal of the end of the movie is that you just want to take over the schools that eventually, you know, like you're the kid who, who was never in charge and all of a sudden you are. And I imagine that that's exactly what you're feeling, right? That, that you now have control of everything and you didn't before. You know, one of the wisest things that I know is I don't have control over very much. <laughs> I have control over Good my level. attitude. I have control over my disposition, but um, I work with an incredible team. And so um, I do have a lot of influence on culture and a lot of influence on leadership, but very little control of of many things. Yeah. And from what I understand, you are also taking over from someone who or you took over from someone who had been in the position for a long time. And you mentioned being in control of culture. Uh, And I I know what it's like to be uh, with leadership that's been in the role for such a long time. Mm -hmm. They do things their way. You sort of know that. And then you, you know, you have to make that transition gently. Um, How has that been so far? You know, I was very fortunate. I was in Owasso for three years as the assistant superintendent. So I had the opportunity. I led teaching and learning. And so Dr. Ogilvie was my mentor for those three years. And when the Board of Education decided that they wanted me to serve as superintendent, it was it was fairly natural. I said it was kind of like the comfortable girl for the dance. It's somebody you know. <laughs> and um, so it's and Dr. Ogilvie's been very gracious to let me be me. 
Um, he still lives in the community, but he'll text when there's a great newspaper article or when there's something on the news. And so he's he's a cheerleader for what we're doing, and yet he's been really hands-off. And so he knows it was time, just like when he came 14 years ago, he took the reins, and um, he had that same blessing of being able to to do his thing. Yeah. What are some of the unexpected roles that a superintendent plays or the different hats that you have Mm. to wear that maybe someone doesn't quite understand? That's a great question. Um, I think one of the things are how many things that are in the background of a school business. Mm. Um, For example, you know, working with insurance agents or working with um, construction contracts. Um, we have someone who leads construction, but having those conversations, so often we have a very stereotypical picture of um, classrooms and school buildings. Of course, that's the most important thing we do, but we have a $52 million budget. So all of those pieces that work in the background, um, the business side of the house, the HR functions, time clocks, all those things that people don't think about, um, those all fall into our business practices. Sure. So that's usually the thing that people are like, I didn't know that and getting up at four o'clock in the morning to see if we're going to have school. That's sure. <laughs> that's an adventure. So. You're going to be the one who tests the roads, right? I am. I've decided that I need to be out there and be mom driving the roads. <laughs> so two other gentlemen and I do that at four o'clock in the morning. So. Sure. Yeah. You mentioned all the business stuff and I'm curious to hear about the transition. And you've done this over time from teacher to assistant principal uh, mm-hmm. to assistant superintendent and, and in, in some respects getting farther, at least from the day-to-day practices of being directly with students. Is, is that a hard transition to make and then have to focus on the, the business side of things? Or is that just, it, that just part of the job? Because it still impacts them, right? It's still impactful for absolutely. the students. It, but that is, that is the number one challenge. I was a fifth grade teacher and loved it. Um, eighth grade teacher. I loved being a middle school principal. So that probably tells you something about me mm. being a few fries short of a happy meal. <laughs> um, but I I just love kids. And so I have to make time to be at ball games and choir concerts and activities. Um, because if I don't, then I don't know why I get up in the morning. So it's I have to be really purposeful and intentional about that part of my time management. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, w- I read an article about you becoming superintendent and what it did is it laid out some of the priorities that you had at the beginnings, priorities about uh, implementing technology, expanding the gifted program, uh, fiscal responsibility. And I was just curious to maybe get an update. You know, has it has uh, did everything go out the window like, the, you know, day one on the ground <laughs> <Yeah>. and uh, <laughs> or, you know, um, to what extent have you been able to make some 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 movements in that strategic plan or do you even see that as like a short-term strategic plan something that you're I think that's another great question you know when I was working in teaching and learning one of the things that's happened in the state of Oklahoma is we went through an era where there was so much focus on testing and assessment Mm -hmm. and I heard people almost every day say we can't have the joy of learning again well I was committed Mm -hmm. personally professionally to not let that die because most children don't look back over their educational career and say, man, that day I got to do the test prep questions was my favorite day. (laughs) And so part of it is um, what type of learning inspires. So whether it's, you know, STEM is an overused buzzword, but really hands-on learning has always been, Legos have always been cool. And so if if we can think about equity, do all children have access to the learning? And if we can think about, is it meaningful learning? So 
those programs, technology is great, but if there's no learning with it, then it's just a toy. And so finding that balance. um, The other thing, too, is as a strategic planner, having having those goals, having those measurable goals, but not just Amy goals. Our team has to create those goals together because it's ignorant to think that I would carry anything like that out on my own. So I rely on a lot of feedback from our principals and from our teachers that, like, this is not a good idea. That's okay. You have to be humble in leadership to be able to do that. And so those those um, dreams, for lack of a better word, and that vision of equity and expanding gifted education and creating opportunities where all children can be exposed to robotics if they want to be. It doesn't have to be something just for children that are exceptionally advanced because so often we focus on children that um, have a natural bent to something and don't realize that quiet child in the background may have a hunger. They just don't know how to express it. So a lot of it is creating systems of access. And that's that's not very glamorous, but um, it allows every child to have the opportunity. So those things are are blazing along. Um, and when we, we just recently redistricted um, all of our elementary schools in Owasso because we're adding a ninth elementary in the fall. So it's very exciting. We said whatever we're going to do for the new elementary, we have to make sure is at the other eight. So it was almost a litmus test for us to make sure we were doing what we said we would do. Sure. Yeah, there's so much to dig into there, there a lot to chew on. I wanted to jump back just a little bit. Um, you were talking about opening up access. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems like that's something that's really important to you. It is. Is that a s- specific part of your background that you think about the maybe the education system that you came through that specifically has made that something that you really want to focus on? You know, that's a that's a really powerful question because I went to Middell schools um, before there was a Carl Albert. That tells ah, you how yeah. old I my, am. My, my dad did, too. He's, he's, he's a Dell City. I graduated from Dell, Dell City. Dell City High yeah. grad. So. so I graduated in 79. We moved here. My dad retired um, at Tinker Air Force Base. And so um, I was a child, just what I call an ordinary child. And I remember having exceptional fine arts programs. I remember having just great learning opportunities. I did nothing to deserve that except be in the right zip code. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents were not, we probably would have qualified for free and reduced lunch today. Um, and so when I look at that, I often wonder about those teachers. I've, I've had the blessing of connecting with a few of them and thanking them, but people that really defined my love of learning. And um, so when I, I didn't start teaching until I was 34. I was had a business degree. I was working towards a business degree. Had about ninety hours, then stayed home with my children. And so, but I've always been a learner, and I've always had people around me that fostered that. So, my question is, why would we not want to have an opportunity for a child? And so, it the children rely on the adults to create those opportunities. It's a moral um, responsibility to make sure every child in Owasso Public Schools or wherever I'm serving has access to whatever they need to inspire them and maximize their potential. So that's really the core of who I am because someone was that person for me. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. The other thing that I wanted to come back to is you're talking about being from a teaching and learning background, a curriculum design mm-hmm. background itself. Um, how much of that have you integrated into like your leadership style? Like, do you have uh, iterative, you know, feedback loops or things, things in which you're thinking about something within cycles? Does the, the, the process of curriculum design overlap into what you do uh, from a leadership side as well? It does somewhat, except 
my replacement, um, Dr. Coates, has taken on that primary role of sure. teaching and learning. I, I will say, though, that that background drives me to make sure we never meet without talking about teaching and learning. Yeah. And sometimes, depending on the avenue by which someone comes to the superintendency, there's more or less of a focus. And you think, well, of course, there's a focus on teaching and learning, but it depends on what the bent of that individual is. If they come from a business background, that may be the, you know, if they're a CFO first, that may be their primary focus. So one of the things that I always make sure of, even in our leadership team meetings every Monday morning, that there is always a discussion about teaching and learning. And I make sure that like tomorrow we're meeting on class sizes for next year. So that our philosophy about class sizes drives the learning environment. So I'm a part of those conversations, even though someone else may do some of the technical counting and um, numbers, but but it just it has to it has to be a part of your day to day conversations. Otherwise, unfortunately, it falls off the radar. And that's embarrassing to say, but it can so easily with the tyranny of the urgent um, putting out fires that you can forget teaching and learning. And that's the worst thing that could happen in a school district. Yeah, I'm going to. So I'm going to go back again because it's the way my brain works. And, and I apologize. You're easy for, to follow. Yeah, though. You're to, awesome. To someone who, who continues to go uh, go back and forth towards this. But um, uh, one thing that you um, with where, where was my brain going? Um because you keep saying things, I just I just keep latching on to, and I keep saying I want to go back to this. What was it? Oh, I know what it was. So you were you were mentioning uh, wanting to you know expand access as much as possible, make sure that you are able to serve everybody to every degree. Um, and what I love about that is that that's such a public school uh, type of of uh, mindset to have, right? Like you're you you want to reach everybody, and this has been such a big conversation. Uh, in our state, within the nation itself, so uh, I'm thinking about where we are in terms of the the year, and we're almost at the one year anniversary of the walkout. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to hear about how you reflected on what this would be, because because if if I remember the timeline correctly, you were named in February to become the superintendent, mm-hmm. right? And which is which is a pretty long uh, <laughs> waiting in the wings type right. type moment to have, that knowing that we've got we got to get to get through these five months of knowing that you're taking over. Mm-hmm. But in the middle of that happening, we have this two week period in April in which the the walkout uh, happens. How has that changed uh, your you, you know your day to day life now? It it is so interesting. I think somewhere in our life lifetime, we're going to look back and realize we saw something historical of a magnitude that we may not understand. Um, you know, we're going to be talking about leadership later on this evening. Most people don't see teachers as leaders. They lead a classroom all day long, but most people don't see a teacher as a person of leadership. And so there was almost something um, uncomfortable about seeing teachers take on the role of leaders But for those of us who believe in teacher leadership, it was not uncomfortable. And so we met every night with our teacher leadership team from our teachers association. And we were like, what are you hearing? What are you hearing? And we worked through. And, you know, Dr. Ogilvie and I talked and I said, you know, for moms and dads planning, let's just go out a week at a time. Yeah. And I didn't really see that as as courageous as it was until I looked in the rearview mirror may not have been brilliant either, but it was one of those things that you just feel like if I was a mom, would I want to get up every morning? I know how stressful snow days are. Right. Right. And, 
I also think it was a message to our teachers that we believe in you. Yeah. We believe in what you're doing. Um, and so as we work through that together, I think it changed the dynamics in our school district among our teachers association leadership and our school district administration for the positive, because we sat around the table as fellow leaders. We have different roles, but we sat around the table and we brainstormed. I believe that our teacher leadership wanted to take care of children just like we did. But they were to a place where they were tired of being the doormat and they needed to speak up. They found their voice and the the change was historic. How has has there been moments where because we've seen this now happen, there was this domino effect sort of happen. We had West Virginia and then Oklahoma Mm -hmm. and then Georgia, Arizona, Colorado, all within April of 2018. Uh, And then L.A. just took place this in in, at the beginning of this year as well. Um, In some ways, have you found yourself falling into almost like a leadership role of being able to pass on maybe to peers in other states of how how we approach this or share share your story? from a leadership level of how do you how do you go about you know communicating with parents communicating back with teachers assessing the situation we did that more at a state level mm. during the walkout we were calling and texting and emailing hourly is probably not an exaggeration of what are you doing what are you considering um, the state dynamics are a little different so we have not had that communication however I feel confident there's similarities among the states I, yeah I have to imagine that, that, that just to have people that can get together it's a it's a unique group of people that have been through something that I, I think is is genuinely hard right it, you, and no one has the roadmap to right. necessarily how to deal with these these statewide or citywide walkouts well and we talked very forthrightly with our teachers association in that it feels, We fight and work every day for children to come to school and be educated. So there's something fundamentally a a disequilibrium about not having children in school. But I think we had to assess motives because at first it was there was um, blame. There was a lot of finger pointing and we had to get to the place of believing that we all wanted to have school but we needed to compensate teachers appropriately. And how can we make those two things work together? Um, And it was challenging. It was challenging because people were weary and there was a lot of noise. Um, There were people that were not part of a solution. Um, Some people are problem solvers and some are problem makers. And so those that are problem solvers were trying to work on that. And so we had to kind of shift um, our thinking away from the noise and just look at people that had the same agenda of doing the right thing. And we yeah. are fortunate our leadership, our teacher leadership was amazing in our district. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, the last thing that I wanted to ask you about, uh, and so this, this is something that came to me just over the weekend. I just got back from some spring break travel and um, the movie that I watched on the plane was eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Have you seen? The I movie? have not. I have not. <laughs> okay. It is. Um, as a parent, I have, I have two younger daughters, mm-hmm. both in elementary school. Um, as a parent of, it's sort of a coming of age movie mm-hmm. of a girl going from eighth grade to ninth grade. I'm, I'll need to watch it. Uh, yeah. For me, it just it created an, an amazing amount of anxiety. For you, it probably just brings you home. <laughs> you, you probably you probably seen this happen so much. Um, but uh, it's it, it's similar. There's there's been a lot of these coming of age movies uh, from from these transitions. Whether it's Lady Bird was a big movie mm-hmm. about transition from high school to college uh, there was a movie called Love Simon um, that that was a story of a high school uh, teenage boy who was being outed on social media uh, and eighth grade has this similar uh, social media 
uh, piece in which the uh, the young girl has like her own YouTube channel, you know, and is giving advice uh, to to other students, whether she internalizes it or not, is sort of yet to be seen. Um, but that 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 question about dealing with young people, children, and teenagers mm-hmm. in social media uh, is something that I I didn't deal with going through school. Mm-hmm. Right, we didn't deal with that. But that that has to be something that has to be a large conversations that are taking place at schools right now. So how 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 do you engage with uh, with, with children and teenagers and with the with the conversation of social media? You know, one of the things that I think my generation. I'm 57. And so one of the things my generation has to do is embrace social media because our young people, it is not, it's like breathing. It is not even um, outside their realm. And so when, when I was in school, there were notes passed in class. Some of them were kind, some of them were unkind, some of them tattled on people. The tools have changed, but human nature has not changed. Um, Our theme this year in the school district in Owasso is everyone has a story. And I think one of the the things that I work really hard with our staff and others on is let's not label children. Let's not say all eighth graders are or all freshmen are because everyone has their own story. One person might put something on social media to gain attention. One might because they're mean. One might, I mean, they all have different reasons. And so if we ever hear words where we're lumping everyone into same same group as adults, we need to freeze and say we're going down a wrong path. So um, setting expectations. If you teach about respect, social media will take care of itself. If you tell students, no, don't do that, they're not interested in that conversation any more than I was when I was 16. So human nature and finding your boundaries has not changed at all. The tools have changed. And I think we just have to be really mindful of that so that we don't, um, we don't set up unintended hindrances for our kids. Yeah. Last question. Um, what is the role that you think, given <laughs> talking tonight about women in leadership, what's the role that, that, that public education is playing in, in building tomorrow as women leaders? You know, I think it goes back to everyone having a story. Um, there will be a little kindergartner that will play with um, Legos or design something. And if our teacher says to that little girl, gosh, you could be an engineer, or says to the little boy, you could be an engineer. If those conversations are equal based on talent and natural bents and gifts, then we've, we're setting the path for female leaders. Um, we're setting the path for leadership, period. I think sometimes we work so hard at trying to segregate female, male. But if we just look at gifts and talents um, and let things rise up organically, they will go the direction that those kids are destined to go. And I think, again, make sure we don't create any um, glass ceilings. Um, If we put a poster up about engineering, does it represent girls and boys? Or do we just have two boys in the picture. I mean, little things like that are subliminal messages to tell our kids. Um, I have a daughter and a son, and we told them growing up, you have a calling. Find that calling. Do something that you're happy. The Berenstain Bears say, if you pick the right job, work can be fun. (laughs) We said that to our children all the way through because who wants to go to work every day with something that you don't love? And so that is not gender specific. Um, and so there are young ladies that have aspirations to do things that are non-traditional female careers, 
but embrace that. Let them roll. And um, it's so fun to watch kids become who they're destined to become. It's one of the neatest parts of my job. Very cool. Well, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you. 